0: This is Greg Gilchrist, and you are listening to Everything Compliance on the Compliance Podcast Network.
1: Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to episode 31 of Everything Compliance, the only roundtable podcast in compliance. Today, we take a look at four separate topics. Matt Kelly uh, takes a look at the recent Supreme Court case, which overturned how administrative judges are selected, and Trump's moves to politicize administrative judges and what it may mean for the SEC going forward. Jonathan Armstrong, joining us from Cordery in London, takes a look at GDPR at six weeks. Some thoughts and observations on the first six weeks of GDPR go live. Jay Rosen considers the proactive uses of independent monitors in areas outside anti-corruption compliance. He takes a look at the use of monitors to help facilitate uh, antitrust agreements for mergers, and also hospital conversions. I joined the panel today sitting in for Mike Volkov, where, where I discussed the three recent FCPA settlements, which incorporated the new FCPA corporate enforcement policy and anti-po- anti-poly non-policy into them, done in Bradstreet, Panasonic Avionics, and Credit Suisse. I take a look at these to see if they have increased the incentives for companies to self-disclose and also whether it will increase compliance or whether it will go the other way and cause companies to take compliance less seriously. As always, we have rants today, which conclude the podcast. The Everything Compliance Gang consists of Mike Volkoff, founder of the Volkoff Law Group, Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitors, Vice President of Affiliated Monitors, Jonathan Armstrong, partner at Quarterly Compliance in London, and Matt Kelly, founder and editor of Radical Compliance. Everything Compliance is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Jay Rosen. Go Um, ahead, sorry. Jay, we've had quite a few uh, public comments by uh, government regulators about the uh, proactive uses of monitoring, and certainly uh, in the FCPA area, but I was wondering, uh, Ed, how would you uh, consider using proactive monitoring in an area of outside the FCPA? Any thoughts on that?
2: Yeah, that's, that's a great question, Tom. And I've got a couple different examples that I can share with you. Um, just to kind of set the context, um, as you said in the opening, uh, most compliance practitioners are usually aware of the role that monitors play in uh, FCPA enforcement action. However, the use of independent monitors is much broader than simply in the criminal or civil enforcement action space. And um, one of the things that we look at is that at its most basic level, an independent monitor is a way for our government to extend its reach, both in terms of lengthening out the time that you have true government oversight and in terms of many of the techniques uh, that we can use as monitors to ascertain certain facts. So there's, we can use focus groups, review documents, talk to senior and middle management. Uh, the thing that's interesting about this tool is that it's very cost-effective for federal, state, and even local governments to extend their reach. And this is a very cost-effective solution, and that's driven home by the fact that the uh, Cost is not borne by the government or the regulatory entity, but the cost is borne by the person or the company that's being monitored. So um, one of the things we can look at is an engagement that um, Affiliated Monitors is actually f- finishing up, and we've been uh, engaged by the Federal Communications Commission to ensure that conditions around anti-competitive and other issues were met in the AT&T and DirecTV merger. And basically, the conditions had to do with offering discounted broadband surface to certain low-income households. So, what the FCC wanted to access, uh, wanted this access for broadband to low-income com- families, particularly for school kids. So, in our uh, position as the monitor, we assessed marketing programs, messaging issues, And this was really an interesting use of the monitor. This is the first time that the FCC had used a monitor in its way. So, um, you know, the bottom line on that way, on this use of it from the regulator, is that it's a way for them to extend their reach. It's paid for by the entity that's being monitored. And it allows us to build confidence in the regulatory process because an independent monitor has been there to check conditions. Uh, another thing that uh, we can take a look at is that in many states, there are situations where you have a for-profit hospital that may be buying a nonprofit entity, and some of these same same issues uh are present in, in this example. So you might have a hospital that was started by a charitable or religious organization. And as I said, it may be have been acquired or approached by for profit entities who are interested in acquiring them. States are concerned that they simply want these healthcare institutions not to be snapped, snapped up. So they want to make sure that the interests of the public are protected and still being served. Uh, there are multiple interests that the public, public has when a not-for-profit entity is bought by a for-profit entity, including making sure the for-profit entity will exist as a health care provider for a reasonable period of time, that they're good neighbors, that they'll pay taxes, and that the charities that were in place will continue to be in place. When such a conversion occurs, the purchaser may agree to a wide variety of conditions, such as maintaining certain services, making capital improvements, expanding certain areas, meeting certain public health priorities. And an independent integrity monitor may be engaged in some or all of the following reviews. Uh, A monitor can also consider other factors which may seem to be less healthcare related, but could also impact a conversion. There might be an agreement for capital improvements, and this might be over a period of time because normally in the first year of the uh, combination, there's not a lot of capital outlays. So an acquirer typically, um, as I said, does not make outlays in the first year, but a regulator would need a monitor in place for some period of time to make sure the investments are made the money is spent is actually going to capital improvements, and that there could be ancillary agreements such as participating in and sponsoring community activities or education. So the bottom line in both of these examples is whether we're looking at a merger of two different um, telecom and broadcast uh, properties, or we're looking at the merger of a for-profit and a non-profit healthcare entity. By bringing in an independent monitor, you extend the reach of the regulator at no extra charge. And then you also have an independent set of eyes there that can come in. And again, sometimes uh, the independent uh, view can be uh, much different than those folks who are in the trenches and that are working on that merger and are just trying to get it across the line. So by utilizing monitors in a sense that is more about um, checking duties and responsibilities and less about enforcing crime. Uh, It provides uh, another tool that uh, regulators can have in their back pocket.
1: So, Jay, uh, you mentioned a couple of things I wanted to follow up on. Uh, One was you talk about using an independent integrity monitor to build confidence in the overall process. But then you followed it up with I thought was with a very interesting comment around hospital conversions and that monitors can actually help protect an interest, the public's interest. So typically in an FCPA monitorship, uh, the monitor would uh, work with the company, obviously, but also with the government. Um, to make sure that the uh, settlement agreement was enforced, but I guess what I'm hearing you say is the monitors can actually work for a much wider variety of stakeholders than simply uh, the regulator, uh, the DOJ or the SEC in the FCPA world, and the company. Is that uh, accurate? That's
2: accurate, and that is well said, Tom. So um, I, I think it really goes back to the fact that a lot of people, um, when they learn a concept or they see something, they might say that this tool can only be used in one, um, one setting. It only has one utility. And, um, you know, by looking at these other stakeholders who can be served by bringing on uh, an independent monitor, you suddenly have uh, a much uh, – probably a, a much greater – audience of uh interested participants who would you know like to know about a solution like this because in that hospital situation you've got all those different constituencies that want to know uh that have questions about how will this affect my health care how will this affect my service how will this uh you know how long will this hospital be uh, a working entity and all those uh All those questions are something that an independent monitor can help uh, with the agreement of the regulator and the folks who are doing the transaction. Once a set of terms and questions are agreed upon, then that gives the independent uh, compliance monitor a mandate to go ahead and start uh, checking out and making sure that those conditions are being observed
1: Jay, I have another question I wanted to, to follow up on, and it really um, really impacts, I think, some of the things that Jonathan has has uh, if not worked on, certainly talked about. Uh, the Serious Fraud Office has moved forward with a few DPAs in England. Uh, I think three, and one of the things that dif- differentiates the U.S. system from the English system is there a is there is more court oversight. So you actually have a judge involved in not only uh, setting up the DPA, but perhaps involved more greatly moving forward than judges here in the United States. Do you see um, the monitorship process as something that uh, is broad enough to really uh, address issues from a court as well, in addition to uh, uh, um, other stakeholders that a monitor may be responsible to or protect?
2: Yeah. Uh, I, I, don't really see that as, as being, um, uh, a, a huge differ, differentiating factor, Tom. Um, the bottom line is that some type of oversight needs to be extended and that judge does not have the capability to go embed, uh, him or herself in a company to check and make sure things that are happening. So I, I think one of the key things is that with, uh, a monitor's ability to get out, to visit local or global organizations, to um, develop relationships with employees, and to ascertain how things are going, Uh, I think you could essentially have it um, approved by the judiciary at some point. But I think the important thing is that you still need to have those resources that can go on site. And... It's got to be much more than just filing um, some papers, but there really has to be some benchmarks that people are judged against, and there needs to be some kind of mechanism to go in and and ascertain how those entities are doing and meeting their obligations.
3: Uh, I I have a question, Jay. Um, It seems to me that, obviously, I want to talk about it in a moment, we're in the early days of of GDPR, but we've had some initial uh, things already around uh, the practices of, of large corporations. And it's a similar issue that Tom just alluded to with the SFO. I think there's a school of thought that says that in some cases, we could do with some sort of a monitorship to look at privacy practices for some organizations we've just had a case with the UK regulator involving a hospital in London and its use of Google to sweat data on patient outcomes etc so is there a role for monitorships in that space as well
2: yeah I, I think that's a that's a great idea Jonathan and again I, I think with the um, GDPR just having come into effect at the end of May, this is still new for everyone. But I I would say that this would be a a similar mechanism that could be suggested uh, to make sure that, you know, the um, parameters of whatever agreement that is put in place are met. So I think that's a great idea.
1: Mm -hmm. All right. Well, that uh, seems like a good uh, place for us to move to Mr. Jonathan Armstrong. Jonathan, uh, I think we're at uh, six, perhaps uh, six to seven weeks now of life with GDPR. And I was wondering if you had just some thoughts and observations, uh, certainly from the, the London and UK and even EU perspective that we don't get here in the United States.
3: Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things from my point of view is there has been more activity than is in the public domain. The uh, IAPP uh, led some FOI requests. We know that that flushed out just under 3,000, complaints. And We've been doing a bit of work at Cordray to look at some some more stuff e- even behind that number. That number, for example, doesn't include Germany. And we know that one of the German regulators, for example, in uh, response to an informal request has said that, that their uh, number of complaints is up by a factor of four since GDPR came in. So, I would guess if you forced me to that the real number of complaints is probably around about seven to 10,000 at the moment. Um, the IAPP figures are always going to be on the low side because all of the regulators there responded within a month bar one. And of course, the majority of complaints to regulators are about failure to deal with data subject rights so subject access requests historically and you can't really complain that those rights haven't been uh, observed within a month because a month is the um, gestation period for a request after making the request you have to make wait a month before you can complain to a regulator so as I say I think the figures probably seven to ten thousand Um, and uh, of the most significance probably are about 30 that the European Data Protection Board, this new sort of body that's a a meeting place for the various EU data protection regulators, has lodged on uh, what's called the IMI system, which is a system that enables regulators across Europe to deal with... uh, complaints together. So we know that there are about 30 complaints uh, as at the 5th of July on the IMI system. I would think that at least some of them are from our good friend Max Schrems. Uh, So Mr. Schrems, you'll remember, is the uh, Austrian then law student who effectively brought down Safe Harbour and has these ongoing proceedings challenging privacy shield and standard contractual clauses uh, that are linked to a complaint that he made to the Irish regulator about Facebook. And uh, his pressure group, NOYB, have lodged a number of complaints which the EDPB met on day one to look at, uh, or, or at least that was on their agenda for the 25th of May. So some of these thirty super complaints, if you like, are likely to be from Max Schrems. I think some of the others will relate to another pressure group called uh, La Quadrature du Net, uh, who are a French uh, pressure group. They've again a history of challenging U.S. corporations. In particular, they brought a uh, an action that tried to strike down a Privacy Shield, which failed for various technical reasons, but um, but they say that they represent some 12,000 complainants, and they have issued their first batch of complaints to uh, Canil, the French data regulator, and they say they've got another batch ready to go when Canil have got through those, but they didn't want to make uh, too many at once. So, when you add in German complaints, I would have thought that the German complaints are probably likely to be towards the higher end. But given that we haven't got any stats from Germany, top of the league table in terms of number of complaints received is the UK. They'd had 1,106 complaints in the first 24 days. France is next, 426 in 24 days. The Czech Republic, around 400 in the first 26 days. Ireland, perhaps unsurprisingly, next, given the number of U.S. corporations that HQ in Ireland. Ireland, incidentally, have also uh, released figures on the number of data breach notifications. So, they'd had 547 GDPR data breach notifications in the first month. Uh, uh, We've been involved in our first GDPR data breach notification, and I, I think all we can say is The 72 hours is as brutal as we predicted it would be, even for a really well-organized corporation. 72 hours is very painful, and it's, uh, you know, your abiding memory is how little you know about the breach rather than how much when you're reporting it to to a regulator. Um, A couple of other things that are probably of interest, Uh, we've had um, uh, the ICO has, has launched an investigation into call phone warehouse a leading telco on the basis of reports it has made. That could be a significant case given its scope. And additionally, under the old data protection legislation, the UK regulator has announced an intention to fine, note, not a fine as much of the media have said, an intention to fine Facebook £500,000, which is the current maximum the regulator is suggesting that had it been a gdpr breach rather than under the old law the figure would be higher and interestingly again in that case there are a couple of other cases linked to it one is over um, a, a publication called Emma's diary so it brings me back to my days when we were expecting my daughters Emma's diary is a is a is a, a thing to support Uh, expectant parents, but it seems that that data was being resold to political parties. So all these shades of the debates that you've had in the US about uh, Facebook advertising, etc. But also interestingly, the UK data protection regulator seems to also think she has jurisdiction over a Canadian entity under the old law and has issued enforcement or started enforcement proceedings there. Um, That's quite surprising because obviously a lot of people have talked about the geographical reach of GDPR, but they haven't thought that that geographical reach would apply so much under the old law. So a firm message that North American companies, for example, are in scope for GDPR, and the corollary of that as part of this Facebook Cambridge Analytica activity is that a subject access request. From a U.S. national is also the the topic of criminal proceedings against U.K. directors of um, a, of a Cambridge Analytical linked entity. So that geographical piece seems to be, you know, very much a a sort of flat world as far as data privacy regulations concerned. And then I'll maybe mention one other case, which I think is pretty interesting, and watch this space. It's uh, an investigation under GDPR by the Spanish data Protection Regulator, the APD, into the activities of La Liga, the Spanish Football League. Uh, La Liga uh, allowed football fans to download an app to get stats on their favorite uh, football, obviously the wrong term being soccer in in your case, uh, uh, football players and how they performed on the pitch. When you downloaded the app, you could take another box that said something like, uh, I wish to support my team. I wish to assist my team. And if you take that box, potentially your mobile device, your phone or whatever, was turned into a spying device it is alleged for la liga so that if you walked into a bar the microphone would switch on the microphone of your device would try and work out whether uh, a, a uh, la liga game was being played in that bar and if it was the app checked with la liga's database to see if that bar had been authorized to show the game uh, and had paid its license fees And if it hasn't, if it hadn't, the data from your phone, so the geolocation data and the microphone data was allegedly uh, used to support enforcement activity against the owner of the bar. So, uh, so, So that's likely to be a pretty large investigation, I'd suggest. It is alleged that this app was downloaded 13 million times. So given the population of Spain, that's, uh, that, that's quite a, a heavy footprint and, and, and likely to be a pretty large investigation as a result. So I think we've seen quite a lot of GDPR activity already, clearly an increase in subject access requests, and some regulators flexing their muscles already.
1: Matt, I think you had a question for Jonathan.
0: Well, yeah, I, I have a more of an issue to put on the radar screen about privacy. And, you know, Jonathan, I'd be curious if you had any thoughts and everybody else as well. But I don't know if you guys had heard about this story last week, this brouhaha on Twitter, where a uh, comedy writer who was on a flight, I think, from New York to Texas or California, uh, she was sitting with her boyfriend and basically was live tweeting the flirtations going on between two single people a man and a woman sitting in front of them and uh and you know this wound up look she was very funny about it and there were several dozen tweets and uh she definitely painted it to seem like uh these two random singles sitting next to each other really hit it off and weren't they flirting wasn't this great and at the end of it she did approach the man and he shared his Instagram identity with the comedy writer. And because the other woman, the flirting woman, um, had shared Instagram connections with him, suddenly people been managed to track down the identities of these, this man and woman who had been chatting up and The man had been very okay with this. He thought it was fun, and this became a thing. They wound up on daytime television talking about it or something. But the woman involved did not want any of this and did not know that the comedy writer sitting behind her had been live tweeting it to the point where she put out a a statement last night saying she'd been stalked and harassed on her Instagram feed. She had to delete her Instagram feed, all of this. And it really got me thinking, you know, how would this exist How would this unfold in a GDPR world? Now, these were all Americans in America, so GDPR does not apply. There were no corporations involved. These are just individuals. But it brought out some really bright lines about where you are or are not in the public world, what your expectations of privacy are, and how somebody can sort of force you to become a public figure against your consent. And yeah. it just strikes me as the sort of thing that we have not thought all of this through yet. And I could easily see this is going to trip up some company somehow because companies trip up over things all the time. And, Jonathan, I'd just be curious what you thought of that.
3: Yeah, I did see that story. I didn't know the end, so I'm grateful for that. I saw the the sort of flirting-type messages in the commentary. And, of course, an individual can be liable for uh, – administrative fines etc under gdpr just as a corporation can there mm. is something called the domestic purposes exemption so if it's you running your household then that could be uh, could come within the exemption but if i'm a comedian and i'm tweeting to r- increase my profile on social media that's yeah. unlikely to come within the domestic purposes exemption so the comedian even if it's a business of one they still have to you know potentially you know do things like registration with the uk registra- uh, registrar if they're, if they're doing stuff over here and they're probably subject to the requirements of gdpr even if they just sit in the us and tweet about passengers on a british airways flight let's say because that would probably be enough to give, to give a connection. And we've had some interesting cases on uh, things like domestic purposes exemption. We have just had an ECG, ECJ case on, I, I don't know the right word, but uh, on the activity of uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, who uh, said that they were basically showing up and knocking on doors as individuals, not necessarily as part of the organization. And they weren't sharing emails, but they were drawing on maps, and they were sort of crossing out houses where people had said, never darken this door again. Mm -hmm. And they'd circled houses where they thought people might be receptive to a second visit uh, from Jehovah's Witnesses. And they argued a number of things to say that they didn't come within privacy law, um, one of which was that the, you know, there weren't records as such. There was just a map with handwritten scribble on. And the ECJ have been rather unsympathetic to their claims, saying, no, nope, that's a, a record. It's, a, it's effectively a business record, your hand-scribbled map. Just because it looks a bit shoddy or tatty doesn't mean to say it isn't a business record. It isn't domestic purposes exemption. You're doing it for the benefit of your organization and you're within GDPR and if you're going to write and there's no suggestion they did but if you're going to write you know uh, crazy woman who's a Trump supporter and circle that around one of the houses um, then then you have to be responsible for that and you're responsible for subject access requests etc etc so I think cases like that uh, will be seen we've had a few in the UK already usually around things like neighbor disputes where neighbor A puts a camera outside their house to monitor what neighbor B is up to, et cetera, et cetera. And these cases are fairly rare, but but we do get them. And there are civil actions as well.
1: Interesting. Jonathan, would that extend to uh, video surveillance that's at my house for security purposes?
3: Yeah, it does. Yeah, so, um, so CCTV is definitely under the scope of GDPR. It makes life rather awkward for a lot of organizations because, they, um, because it's very hard to answer subject access requests. You know, for example, uh, I know of a store group that keeps its images for 10 years. Now, you imagine you're a store group. You've got, let's say, 200 stores, I know when I walked into that store, you have no clue. So theoretically, to proper ans- properly answer my subject access request, you've got to get somebody to eyeball 10 years of footage times 200 stores. So, so, so CCTV is a worry for large corporations. And even from a domestic point of view, uh, you, they, that, that, those images would still come under GDPR. In the UK, it's a very minor point. The registration regime for CCTV just changed last month, but it's still it's still going to come within a privacy law, even if it's a domestic camera.
1: Very interesting, Matt Kelly. I've uh, been really looking forward to asking you about this topic, Matt. We've saw a U.S. Supreme Court case which struck down the current selection process for administrative law judges in a wide variety. I think it was in the Securities and Exchange Commission, but it really applies to a wide variety of ALJs literally across the government. I was wondering if you had any thoughts on what this might mean for agency enforcement going forward.
0: Um, Yeah, this is an interesting thing, and there's a lot of, um, I think, confusion out on Twitter well, about everything, really, but but also about this specifically uh, that we need to clear up. Um, I think, first, it is important to stress this applies to administrative law judges. And I've seen some people misinterpreting things and saying that President Trump is seizing authority to appoint political hacks in federal judgeships across the country. That is completely wrong. Um, this executive order allows either the president or the heads of federal agencies should he designate them, which he is doing to select ALJs. And it gives them a broader discretion to choose where administrative law judges can come from. Um, Previously, Administrative law judges were more like career civil servants. The Office of Personnel Management would hire them from time to time. There'd be a casting call. You'd get a pool of ALJs. And then, if you're an agency and you realize, well, we need a few of them here, you would recruit them from that pool. And they were much more like apolitical career employees under the federal government. Along comes this complaint from somebody who had uh, suffered a undesirable outcome at the hands of an administrative law judge at the SEC. And that defendant said, that's unconstitutional because of how the, AL, the, the SEC selected administrative law judges. And they are, the Supreme Court basically said that these are inferior officers. That is a fancy way of saying they need to go through a more formal appointment president, uh, process established by the president. Um, And that's what this executive order does. It establishes that process. And uh, so the president, uh, President Trump, has already given, say, the Securities and Exchange Commission. He has delegated that authority to the commission. Now they get to appoint ALJs. Um, They get to appoint, you know, they have more discretion in who they appoint. In theory, could they appoint some political hack with no experience? In theory, yes. Um, in practice, they are still going to go through a certain vetting process, but there's going to be more discretion around uh, what that vetting process is, who can be on this list. The Office of Personnel Management, I think, is probably going to have less involvement than it historically would have. Um, needless to say, this has become a political football, with Democrats saying that Donald Trump is going to force um political appointees into the ALJ process who will then chuck all you know, precedent and uh, career common sense out the window and just push whatever political agenda the president wants. That's what the cynics would say. Um, I have to admit there are two different ways to look at this. Um, from here forward, all administrative law judges who get appointed and then start adjudicating cases, I don't know really how much they are going to water down the quality of these judges. Um, I think that, you know, we have seen some watered down quality judges in the uh, judiciary branch nominated from President Trump. I don't know that that's going to happen here. There is still going to be an extra layer of independent agencies are going to be picking these people, by and large. Uh, they're probably going to rely on some other staff to help vet them. And those other staff, say, right below the five SEC commissioners, they generally are going to be more professional and apolitical. There are gradations of that. Let's call it what it is. You know, I think it, there probably will be some more political influence. But I'm not one who thinks that this is some draconian push to have Donald Trump's political donors and political favorites suddenly flood the executive branches and independent agencies and take over the ALJ process. I don't think that's going to happen all that much. Will it happen sometimes? Probably. Will it happen a lot? I don't think so. Also worth remembering, if you were a compliance officer – This really only applies to civil enforcement. The Justice Department in criminal matters, they do not use administrative law judges. They use federal judges. That has not changed. um, For civil enforcement, a lot of ALJ decisions involve individuals rather than companies. And especially if there is a big issue with your company, you're probably going to settle this anyways with the Securities and Exchange Commission or any other agency. You are probably not going to push it and have it go in front of an administrative law judge. If you are going to go to the mat on it, you're going to go to federal court anyways. Um, On the other hand, for all cases that ALJs had decided in the past, up to today, and now the Supreme Court has said that those appointments were unconstitutional, this makes all of those previous decisions a jump ball. And we have already seen um, a lot of criminal defendants are coming around to say, well, if the judge was appointed unconstitutionally, my case might be invalid. We're going to see a lot of, um, I think, revisitation of that. That's probably going to be a process that takes some time. Um, We may be some pain involved in that as well. Uh, And then, you know, lastly, the the bottom line, I think, is that, um, you know, a lot of people will say education process when you're in front of an administrative law judge like that is unfair to defendants and people say that it is unfair to defendants because the deck is stacked against a defendant when you're going before an alj Uh, well that's not going to change all we've done here is change the process to appoint the administrative law judge in the system that still is going to be stacked in favor of the regulatory agency Uh, so for a lot of it, i got to admit, I'm not quite sure there's a whole lot of there there. Um, we, you know, we're still going to go through some hand-wringing over what all of this means, but I think on a practical basis, maybe for outside counsel and white-collar defense lawyers, they're intrigued by this decision. They might have some issues with past cases they're going to take up. For compliance officers worried about big cases involving whole corporations in the future, I don't know that this is going to move the needle of your experience all that much. I mean, life is what it is, and where it's wasn't done, was it where it was unfair before. I think it remains unfair today, and you know that's that, that's life, and it goes on.
1: So, Matt, I was at a presentation yesterday where Carol Brockmeyer, former head of the SEC FCPA unit talked about the types of cases that the SEC sent through the administrative process. And she uh, identified, a, a, I guess, two general categories. One was really in regulated industries, particularly around broker-dealers. Yep. And the second was when there was a uh, settlement slash resolution with a company and uh, they needed the impromptu of a judicial officer uh, just to bless it. So they would go to the ALJ process rather than as the Department of Justice has to do with the DPA, Federal District Court. Um, do you see that process changing at all uh, with these uh, the Supreme Court case and the new executive order?
0: Well, I mean, possibly, and in full disclosure, everybody listening. So I was there, too, at that meeting Tom was talking about, and I, I heard Karen. I was thinking about that today. Um, I mean, I think for broker-dealers and uh, investment advisors and whatnot, that is a subspecialty of compliance and misconduct that really is beyond the scope of what we usually talk about here, and I think the, what big corporate ethics and compliance functions worry about. Um, in theory, if you reach a settlement with a big FCPA resolution with the FCC, and it has to go before an administrative judge to sign it, like could they wind up with some sort of vehemently anti-FCPA uh, person who's going to just never let the sec give a settlement at all i mean like and basically side in favor of the company i i suppose that's possible on a practical basis i don't think that's going to be how it works you know we've had settlements get rubber stamped from time immemorial in this country and i think that's probably going to be the case i actually would worry more about how this might work in the future um i think that If you have a future Democratic administration where they're putting more aggressive ALJs in, um, could they wind up pushing back on some proposed settlements and saying, I want a higher penalty? Uh, Somewhat like what Jed Rakoff tried to do in the uh, Second Circuit up in New York, although he got slapped down pretty hard when he did try that. But an ALJ might have more opportunity to do that in the future. When are we going to have a Democratic president? I don't know is this really going to come to pass? I'm not sure. But I could see that in that world, these people who originally filed the case that brought this about, they probably would not like that outcome. Um, On the other hand, in a Republican world, if the companies are more, I, I don't know, i mean, are the companies more likely to say, we're going to be able to get an ALJ who's going to give us what we want, so we're going to So, what, you're going to keep fighting rather than resolve? Um, Maybe, but we'll just have to wait and see if that happens.
1: All right. Well, I am sitting in today for Mr. Volkoff, and uh, I wanted to talk about the three major FCPA settlements uh, over the past uh, three months and really see if there there was a way to... um, Consider them in light of the new FCPA corporate enforcement policy and the new anti-piling-on policy. I want to focus on three, the Dun & Bradstreet or D&B, Panasonic Avionics, and Credit Suisse. So let me start with Dun & Bradstreet. Dun & Bradstreet received a full declination, and one can really not say enough about the response of Dun & Bradstreet, which led to the declination in the face of clear evidence of what the government said was bribery committed by employees of Dun & Bradstreet subsidiaries in China. There were several levels to D&B's robust response. The first was the company uncovered the conduct and self-reported to both the DOJ and SEC. Next, the company engaged in a thorough investigation, fully cooperating with the Department of Justice, including reporting all relevant facts to the DOJ, making both former and current employees available for interviews and flying them to the United States. And finally, per the Yates memo, the company identified all individuals involved in or responsible for the conduct. Equally significant was the remediation engaged in by Dun & Bradstreet. The company had worked to create one of the top compliance programs since the self-disclosure and engaged in a significant internal discipline. The company terminated those involved directly in the misconduct but went much further in disciplining other employees by reducing bonuses, reducing salaries, lowering performance reviews, and formally reprimanding them. The level and degree of discipline demonstrated a significant level of commitment to a culture of compliance far beyond the company's stated compliance program. I really think the d settlement put real teeth into the new FCPA corporate enforcement policy. It showed that the presumption of a declination is not only a powerful incentive, but also a very useful tool in the government's desire to reward companies who step forward to self-report, extensively cooperate, and thoroughly remediate. It's a welcome step for the compliance profession – professional who can now point towards a real and tangible benefit to using the DOJ self-disclosure settlement process. Now, companies will uh, always, while companies will always need to return ill-gotten gains to the government in the form of profit disgorgement, the d uh, declination and its uh, the FCPA resolution demonstrates the government's twin goal of robust enforcement and rewarding companies, which follow the prescripts of the new FCPA corporate enforcement policy. Now on a Panasonic avionics, and this was in many ways um, a very interesting case, largely because you had C-suite involvement in the bribery scheme. There was um, a whistleblower complaint and a civil suit, which led to the company's internal investigation. However, uh, Panasonic did not voluntarily report or self-disclose to relevant authorities. The company did not receive any voluntary self-disclosure credit and, indeed, because of this, was uh, not available or not eligible to receive a uh, declination. Uh, Although uh, at some point the company did get some old-time FCPA religion and performed a thorough investigation, making factual presentations to the Department of Justice, providing facts, learned during those interviews – and voluntary making, voluntarily making U.S. and foreign employees available for interviews in the United States with the DOJ and SEC. Um, the company also engaged in significant remediations. It caused several senior executives who were either involved in or aware of the misconduct to be separated, I love that phrase, uh, from the company, even if it was in a manner which the DOJ characterized uh, as, quote, untimely, end quote. The company enhanced and committed to continuing enhance its compliance program and internal controls, including ensuring that its compliance program satisfied minimum best practices going forward. Uh, all of this led to a, a reduction off the minimum end of the fine range of 25%. Uh, we did not see self-disclosure. We did not. Uh, we saw egregious conduct in the form of C-suite involvement. Yet. Even with those factors, the company was still able to receive a 25% credit. Now let's turn to the most recent Credit Suisse. And Credit Suisse uh, had some very damaging facts around its hiring of uh, family members, uh, foreign government officials, and employees of state-owned enterprises, largely in China. Credit Suisse did not uh, did receive any credit for self-disclosure um, and it only received a partial credit for its cooperation. The um, remediation the company engaged in eventually was uh, deemed significant, and I won't go through all of those steps, but even here, the company did not receive full credit as it did not discipline those within the organization who engaged in the misconduct and instead only recorded Policy uh, internal company policy infractions and provided notices of those infractions to the employees personnel files. Yet for all of the above, uh, the company did receive a 15% discount off the bottom range of the sentencing guidelines. Uh, and then as to the anti-piling-on policy uh, in the SEC order, it specifically stated that the uh, Credit Suisse acknowledged that the SEC was not imposing a civil penalty based upon the imposition of a $47 million criminal fine as part of the company's settlement with the Department of Justice. So in these three cases, I see uh, real tangible benefits articulated by the government in the settlement documents. Obviously, the, uh, all of these cases started before the implementation of the new uh, FCPA corporate enforcement policy. Nevertheless, they were all fell under it. Uh, for their resolution. Certainly, you really cannot say enough about Dun & Bradstreet uh, with receiving their full declination. And another interesting point on D&B was, and some commentators uh, really howled about this, but they completely missed the mark on the following. Uh, the office in China where the FCPA violations occurred was raided by Chinese officials. And this uh, raid was made public and therefore known to US enforcement authorities. However, that raid was not on bribery and corruption, it was on antitrust issues. So the Department of Justice concluded, and I think uh, uh, in a positive manner, concluded that because there was no uh, public airing of bribery and corruption allegations before DNB self-disclosed to the uh, DOJ, they would not lose at least the benefits or potential benefits of the pilot, uh, excuse me, of the new corporate enforcement policy. Yet even with Panasonic Avionics and Credit Suisse, which both had some very egregious facts, Panasonic Avionics, as I mentioned at the C-suite level, uh, Credit Suisse Hong Kong operation had significant um, violations at the uh, the business unit level in Hong Kong, but they uh, were clear uh, not only workarounds, but understanding that what the actions that they were engaged in violated company policy and therefore the FCPA. Both of those companies received a 20 and 15 percent discount, uh, respectively. So, in my mind, this really speaks to the uh, the positive nature of the new FCPA corporate enforcement policy. And if companies do step forward, they're going to receive some some very tangible benefits from the government. So, in terms of the calculation to make a self-disclosure, I would put these all in the positive category for compliance practitioners, corporate compliance programs, and boards of directors from the Government's perspective, I think it shows uh, that uh, go- the government really wants cooperation, and they'll reward you for comp- uh, cooperation. So um, that's really my thoughts. Uh, uh, before we get to some breaking news that Matt has for us, does anyone have any questions on um, on my part? Okay, Matt, well, uh, you want to tell us uh, what you've seen on your Twitter feed?
0: Well, all we have right now is that, um, according to the latest news, we're all waiting for Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein to announce yet another uh, indictment in the Bob Mueller probe, and we are still waiting around to know exactly who, but uh, apparently agents from uh, the special counsel's office went to federal court Uh, to um, unseal a indictment that the grand jury returned this morning. And that's all I got at the moment. Although the the uh, latest is that uh, Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein is now nine minutes late and the Twitter world is unhappy. But that's all we know.
1: All right. Well, we'll uh, give uh, the Deputy Attorney General some time because we need to get on to some rants. And uh, I'm going to end our rants this week, but uh, our order will be Jay Rosen, Jonathan Armstrong, Matt Kelly, and then myself. So, Jay, do you have a a rant for us today? I do. Uh,
2: In the latest installment of The Apprentice, which aired this Monday, um, the president has put forward Judge Kavanaugh to be uh, the replacement for Justice Kennedy on the Supreme Court of the United States. And most of the pundits are saying that you cannot ask uh, a prospective Supreme Court justice how they would rule in a certain case such as abortion rights, Roe v. Wade, because that is something that because the justice wears a black cape, he or she is able to have a fair and independent opinion. But then in yesterday's... uh, have you no decency trial? Have Mr. Peter Strzok, um, a CI, or rather, an FBI agent who unfortunately has disgraced the Bureau with his text messages, but they're saying because he feels a certain way about the President of the United States, that he would not be able to do his job impartially. So I'm just um, a little bit confused by a political speak here, and I wish some. One could enlighten me on how this really works. So that's my rant.
1: Mr. Armstrong, you got a rant for us from London, or are you just going to look outside at the floating pig?
3: <laughs> I'm actually diverting my eyes from that sort of thing, and I've just been on holiday-slash-vacation for a couple of weeks on the beautiful southwest of England, so I'm much too chilled for ranting this week. But I have got three things for you. Um, first of all, can I just say that in these days of abject misery for the British uh, uh, British people, well done to the football team for cheering us all up. Uh, uh, obviously, as we're talking, we don't know the results of the third, fourth playoff. I think it's irrelevant and probably shouldn't be run. But, you know, top four is good enough for us with the young team we've got. Secondly, um, In the UK, we tend to have something that one comedian called a jolly boys outing, where chaps of a certain age get together and try and recreate their youth. At the end of the month, for example, my former university housemates and I are going on a jolly boys outing to watch some cricket. The last time we did it was about 30 years ago. But I want to give praise to Rick Stanton, John Valanthan, and their six friends um, for a bonus point, if anyone can guess what their Jolly Boys outing was, well, these eight friends got together and traveled 6,000 miles to lead the rescue of a junior Thai football team from a cave. They seem to me to have displayed outstanding bravery And amidst all the hype of certain U.S. entrepreneurs getting involved in this rescue, it's easy to forget that it was actually these uh, eight volunteers, not professional divers, who had the guts to get over there to Thailand, think they had the skills to find these boys in the first place and then to engineer a rescue. And we obviously don't know the full facts uh, of any of this, Uh, Rick and John uh, arrived back in the UK this morning and they're off to get some well-deserved sleep. So I just wanted to say praise to them. And my final thing, uh, I know many of our listeners will be delighted to hear the news, which I can break here as an Everything Compliance First, that we are going to have Downton Abbey, the movie. Uh, That's coming along pretty soon. For contractual reasons, I am not able to confirm whether I will appear as the Earl of Cordray in it. But uh, that's something to look forward to in the coming months. Hear, <laughs> here, here. It,
1: Really is. Uh, here, here. So some, some shout outs from Jonathan Armstrong. Matt Kelly, which direction are you going to take it this morning?
0: Well, I have a rant against the Justice Department, and it is not only because uh, Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein is late with his news on whatever uh, new Bob Mueller indictment is coming. Matt, Matt,
3: is it it Rosenstein and Gildan Kranz are dead?
0: It it, it is not. (laughs) um uh, allegedly uh the latest rumor is that uh, they're going to announce the indictment of 12 russian intelligence officers for uh hacking but wow. we'll see exactly what that is my my rant today about the justice department is their decision to appeal the AT&T Time Warner merger and if it's possible for me to be annoyed at every single party involved in this dispute I am um I am firmly in the school of thought that mergers do not work and mergers are not worth it. Um, I am of mixed views about whether AT&T and Time Warner should or should not be allowed to merge as a vertical merger uh, because that might give them too much power. But first, I suspect that uh, this, when the antitrust division challenged the merger originally, uh, they knew that they didn't have a leg to stand on. I think that Donald Trump wanted them to challenge this just to give CNN a hard time and that Jeff Sessions told the NA Trust division, just do it to get this guy out of our case or get this guy out of our hair. The guy being the president. Um, they lost, no surprise. And uh, Judge Leon gave them a very sternly written decision that said, really, guys, don't do this. Think long and hard before you appeal because this merger is going to go through immediately. They're already merging. And now yesterday, um, the Justice Department says they are going to appeal. Uh, the reason why I really disliked this is that if the department had wanted to argue against this merger originally, they should have argued that it could cause harm to consumers because AT&T will raise prices on all of the content that uh, is not from Time Warner, and so you might wind up having to pay more for, I don't know, Netflix or um, Hulu or something else like that. However, if they made that argument, and the reason they didn't, is that it would have undermined the Federal Communications Commission's ruling that net neutrality was inappropriate and that there's nothing wrong with that. Well, if there's nothing wrong with it, then you can't bring it up in your merger uh, dispute. And like, there was no way that there was any intellectual coherence between the Justice Department saying this merger was wrong and the FCC saying that net neutrality uh, can be repealed. Um, you know, the, the most effective way to argue against the merger would have been to say basically that net neutrality is necessary because we have these abuses. So, of course, they didn't bring it up. And like now we're here. This appeal isn't going to go anywhere. This appeal is for kicking a, a dead horse. These companies are already in the guts of merging. This accomplishes nothing more than just to annoy people and drive up legal fees. And there are more productive ways to spend corporate resources. And we might as well get on with it. Um, and the, the department is not even la- laid out under what logic it is going to try to appeal. It just filed a two-page statement saying, we're going to appeal. And that's all we know. And come on, guys, like. You lost regardless of whether you should have won or whether you threw the game or whether this was ridiculous from the start, you still lost. End it. And, and we are not.
1: So I'm going to do my rant, but before I do that, Matt, I'm going to ask for you to check your Twitter feed. And if you get an update for us, perhaps you can end uh, today's podcast on it. But I want to rant about uh, Trump and NATO. Um, I grew up in an era when the uh, Soviet Union was a, a real thing and the Cold War uh, was a Cold War and potentially could have been a hot war. We have had NATO now for 69 years. Next year is the 70th anniversary of NATO. And for those 69 years, there was no major war, um, several hot spots and minor wars, but there was no major war between the two world powers. And largely that was because of NATO. The the United States funded NATO, uh, the United States brokered NATO's creation, but NATO is an integrated organization of Western democracies uh, designed to present a united front against the Soviet Union, now Russia and others. For Trump to denigrate NATO is a completely uh, idiotic um, move, and it's idiotic because He is complaining about uh, not spending on uh, defense spending on NATO an amount of uh, based upon gross national product. Nobody uh, bases their defense spending on the gross national product at any percentage level. And what he completely misses is that the reason one of the reasons the United States is the greatest economic power of the in the world is that it created a system of open markets which allow U.S. goods to be sold in Western Europe. That was because, one, Europeans didn't have to spend as much money on defense as the United States spends. But number two, it allowed the Europeans to rebuild and create vibrant consumer markets for U.S. products. And so now for Trump to come in and say to Western European governments, you owe me a check for $15 billion is absolutely asinine. Because if they have to spend $15 billion on defense spending or other spending or write a check to the U.S. Treasury, there's going to be a whole lot less money for them to invest in projects which U.S. manufacturers, U.S. US service providers, and U.S. companies will in large part benefit from commercially. So uh, we've had peace with Russia For 69 years, previously the Soviet Union, next year it'll be 70, and large part that was because of NATO. But the bigger point for me is that, along with the Marshall Plan, NATO allowed Western Europe to rebuild. It allows Western Europe to be vibrant. It allows the democracies in Europe to be commercially very active and vibrant, and the United States is the beneficiary of that. So in that uh, rant, Matt, were you able to garner any additional information?
0: Uh, yeah, thank you for stalling. So now we have it confirmed here that um, Bob Mueller has indicted 12 Russian intelligence officials for hacking into the DNC and the Clinton campaign in 2016. Uh, and as people are noting, just the other day, Donald Trump said, Hey, if Putin denies it, what am I supposed to do? He should ponder that question because he is going to meet Vladimir Putin in two days. And this has landed on his desk right now.
1: So, breaking news from Everything Compliance. Gentlemen, uh, thank you for letting me sit in on this episode, and I look forward to uh, our next recording.
3: Thank you. Fantastic.
2: Thanks, Tom.
1: Thanks, Tom. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to episode 31 of Everything Compliance. I hope you'll join us again when I get the gang back together for another podcast episode. Everything Compliance is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network.